Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Francisco Aguilar, professor at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences Department of Forest Economics and leader of the team of specialists on wood energy of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Francisco and co-authors recently published a study on the environmental effects of the rapid growth of wood pellets, which are viewed as carbon neutral to meet climate targets in Europe. We'll focus on how the industry's growth has affected the number of trees and carbon stocks in the U.S. Southeast, which is where most of these wood pellets are being produced. The key question here is whether wood pellets are truly renewable and whether they are truly net zero emissions. Francisco will help us make sense of it all. Stay with us. Okay, Francisco Aguilar from the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's good to be here. Yeah, all the way from from Sweden. Um, So Francisco, we always ask our guests when we get started with episodes how they got interested in working on environmental issues, um, and in your case, uh, forestry. Um, So what sort of led you to, to working on these issues? Um, well, I guess it started with, with my family. Um, my father comes from the countryside, so I always had an interest in, in natural resource management, agriculture, forestry. And I ended up getting a degree in agronomic engineering. And something that I learned from that was that if you study animals, they can um, kick you. You can get injured. Uh, plants don't move. Mm. Numbers behave. People don't. So I ended up becoming a resource economist after all this. Um, and of all the resources that I could have studied, uh, the one that I just captured my passion because of the complexity of the issues is that of forestry and um, the study of economics of forest, forest management and conservation. It's, it's, it's a real passion for myself. Yeah, fantastic. Did you spend a lot of time in forests when you were growing up? A fair amount. Uh, forests, riding a mule, milking cows. Um, and something that I learned to appreciate was, was the complexity of and importance of forests from, from providing habitat uh, for wildlife species, um, the role in watershed management. Uh, as, as a kid, you learn to see all those, all those services and you learn to value those services. And um, it, um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, just again, just how important our forests are for people, even if we don't realize it. Uh, it's it's a real passion for myself. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk about forests today, and one particular product that comes from forests, which is wood pellets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the basis of this conversation is a study that you published recently with a number of co-authors. Uh, in Nature Scientific Reports. The study is called Expansion of U.S. Wood Pellet Industry Points to Positive Trends, but the Need for Continued Monitoring. Uh, We'll have a link to that study, of course, in the show notes. Um, But let's get started with some basics on wood pellets. Um, Can you give us a very high-level overview of the modern wood pellet industry in the U.S. and the EU, which we're going to be talking about today, um, in the context of energy markets. Um, I'm also interested in, you know, when we think about where these wood pellets are coming from, if the forests that they are 
being sourced from, if those trees are being grown specifically to produce wood pellets, or if the pellets are a byproduct from sawmills that might be processing trees for furniture or some other higher value product. Um, so if you could just kind of get us started by giving us a lay of the land, it would be really helpful. Absolutely. And perhaps it is good to start if you have had a pet in your house and maybe you have gone to the pet store and bought pellets. Um, the principle is the same. Um, when we take uh, wood pellets, we take wood fibers, so material from, from forests, from trees. Uh, they are dried, so there is less moisture, uh, and then they are compressed into this uniform, homogenized material. Um, that has less uh, moisture, so less water. Water doesn't burn very well. Um, it's it's more compact, it's more dense, so you have more energy content per volume, and so that material is easier to transport. It's easier to package if you if you want to put it in bags or to transport across the Atlantic if if you are engaging in trade. Um, and that um, gain in quality of the material enhances the capacity of the same wood to produce more energy. So at the end of the day, it's an issue of efficiency, efficiency in converting um, that wood into useful energy and efficiency in terms of the costs associated with transporting the very same energy. It's less expensive when you have a material that is more dense and it's, more, it's easier to burn. The cost per energy, it's, it's lower. So those are some of the, the reasons behind uh, palletization, this process of densifying the content of wood energy into smaller volumes. Um, and then, um, so pellets, you can be, it can be made from agricultural residues, it could be made from forest residues, it could be made from smaller um, wood particles. Um, so you can pretty much pelletize anything. Uh, and in the case of, of uh, wood pellets uh, in the US, historically, we relied much on residues from meals. So meals turning, for instance, making lumber and you have uh, byproducts like sawdust and shavings. And those materials could be dried and densified into pellets. But as the industry grew larger, as meals, some of them grew larger as well, um, you, you had to diversify and you have to, you cannot just rely on the byproducts of other um, companies. You have to procure your own. So one of the biggest, um, I guess, differences that we have seen over time is that instead of just relying uh, much on residues from other uh, industries, from other um, sectors of the wood industry. And now some of the material, much of the material is coming directly from forests. So that's mm -hmm. in, in terms of a change over time, that has been a big one. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, so we're going to talk mostly today about pellets that are produced in the US and then marketed in Europe. Um, and there's a policy factor that's kind of driving uh, a lot of this growth in demand for wood pellets in the EU. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about that policy that's been driving growth and demand for wood pellets uh, in, in Europe? Yes. So it, it goes back to the Renewable Energy Directive. And back in 2009, it was approved to promote uh, more efficiency uh, in the energy sector in Europe, a greater role of renewable energy within the portfolio of the EU. And the third component was of uh, reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, now we have a new directive in place 
and again it supports the advancement of uh, renewable energy reducing emissions improving efficiency under as, as a pillar to the paris agreement so that's how the eu is actually complying with the paris agreement through this directive under the directive individual members of the eu can develop their portfolios to identify the resources that are, that are best suited to meet those targets. So some countries have identified renewable energies such as uh, biomass energy, including biomass from forests, as a key component of that portfolio, of that plan, national plan to meet the renewable energy directive uh, targets. Um, so for instance, here in Sweden, uh, a third of the energy consumed uh, nationally comes from biomass, from bio bioenergy. Wow. Um, so it's it's a pretty large percent. It's one of the biggest in the EU, in fact. Um, most of it is uh, procured domestically. We have a lot of forests in Sweden. So, um, but in the case of other countries, um, like the, uh, let's think uh, Belgium, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, they also identified wood as a renewable energy source, but they don't have as much forests. And so they are relying on the imports of wood pellets to help meet the targets of the uh, energy directive. As you might have noticed, Daniel, I, I skipped the UK um, because the UK was a member of the EU at the time, of course, and, right. and actually it, it is the United Kingdom is, is the number one importer of American wood pellets on, on the other side of the Atlantic. So in fact, the UK is the number one importer of wood pellets from, from the US. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so as many of our listeners are probably aware, there's been quite a bit of controversy and concerns raised about uh, this growth in, uh, in, in using biomass uh, for energy and categorizing it as a renewable resource. Um, there's been some reporting uh, here in the US and I'm not, there probably have been other studies that, that I haven't read, but I'm sure you have, Francisco. Um, so what are some of the major concerns that people raise about this large-scale use of wood pellets as a form of renewable energy. Sure, uh, Daniel. So one of the after the approval of the energy directive, uh, there has been a major expansion in the capacity of manufacturing and exporting pellets along the coast of the southeastern U.S. Along with that. Um, for instance, back in 2005, there were just about no exports of wood pellets. Um, by 2012, there were over 1.7 million metric tons exported from the US to the EU, to the European Union. Uh, last year, it reached nearly 7 million tons. Hmm. So that level of growth um, has raised some concerns. And, and I think it's very important to look at you know, where we come from. Um, historically, we have had uh, situations where forests haven't been well managed. Uh, in fact, much of the forests that we see today has been a factor of um, the regrowth of forests that were depleted uh, a century ago. So there is this history that, you know, there at times we didn't do a good job with in terms of forest management, and there is a lot of uh, reality into that. So seeing the expansion of the industry sort of the historical context that we have seen in, in all in, in past centuries has raised those concerns. So there have been a, a number of groups, um, environmental groups, citizen groups, that have expressed concern that by removing these extra forest biomass, 
one can be depleting the forest, the very same forest we want to protect. And in the interest of European energy expectations and targets, we could be depleting forests in the US. So that has been a major concern. And depletion in terms of how much carbon is stored in those forests, as well as potentially impacts on uh, high quality uh, key habitats within forests and the communities that depend on those forests. Um, so there has been uh, probably uh, concerns over the ecological integrity of, of the forest from which these fibers are procured from, as well as the actual carbon and whether these wood energy or energy derived from wood pellets is, is actually uh, a good environmental alternative. So that has been, those other are two of the major concerns that uh, I have seen. Right. And, and the study that you have recently released does, um, you know, address at least some of those, some of those issues. So, so let's talk now about what some of the key findings were in that work. Um, we'll talk first about what you found in terms of trees, um, how, you know, tree growth uh, in the U.S. and how it may have changed uh, in relationship to the supply of wood pellets. And then next we'll talk about carbon. So what sort of uh, carbon effects you might have found. So let's start first with trees. When, when you compared regions in the coastal southeast that were increasingly exporting these wood pellets, you sort of compared them with other forested regions in the U.S. and places where forest products were produced, what are some of the important findings that you came away with in terms of uh, the number of trees that were growing or that were standing uh, in sure. different forests? Um, perhaps I will start, Daniel, with this idea of a wood basket. And that analogy is a good one because um, given the very thin profit margins that one see in the wood products industry, one has to procure very locally. Okay. So that creates these baskets from where meals get their biomass from. So things can be very localized and that's what we did in this study. We look at these what we call procurement landscapes, sort of these concentric circles around wood pellet meals and we tracked them over time starting in 2005 all the way through 2017 and see how have conditions changed and conditions specifically within what we call uh, timberlands which are forests that are capable of growing biomass and the biomass can be harvested commercially. So it hasn't been set aside for conservation or other purposes. So we tracked those. We tracked those in the coastal southeast and we compared them to the rest of the eastern U.S. to see like how have conditions changed between a region that um, is the main source of U.S. Uh, uh, wood pellets for the EU, the coastal southeast, and the rest of the eastern U.S. And, and something that we found um, was that um, in terms of the coastal southeast, we found a fewer number of life and growing stock trees. But is that a bad thing? And the answer is no, it's not. <laughs> it's just fewer trees as compared to the rest of the eastern US. And the fact that there were no changes in carbon pools within those live trees means that simply carbon was accumulated into fewer live trees, growing stock trees. So that's 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 a good thing within the coastal southeast. Um, regarding to the number of trees that you mentioned, uh, Daniel, um, when we look at a meal that's of a large capacity, so these meals that cannot just uh, rely on, on byproducts, residues, but really have to get some biomass, some of these fibers directly from the from the forest. 
and and for those meals we actually found um, there were a fewer number of standing dead trees that again is it a bad thing well it depends and you you will probably hear me say it depends a few times today daniel um but having fewer standing dead trees could be a good thing or could be a bad thing so if you think about wildfires actually having fewer dead trees on the ground that can catch fire and intensify a wildfire it could be a good thing if we have fewer of them in the landscape right but on the other hand there is a lot of biodiversity the communities that depend on 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 that quote-unquote dead biomass uh, fungi that utilize that biomass and biomass is eventually incorporated into the soil so there are very complex dynamics ecological dynamics that having fewer standing dead trees could potentially be detrimental so as, as, as I said already, it, it depends. It could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. We're just reporting that we ha we found fewer number of dead trees, but we are not making a final call on whether this is a good or a bad thing. Right. That makes sense. It actually reminds me of, so I'm very, very far from a forestry expert, <laughs> but I did read The Overstory, uh, this yeah, uh, really yeah. mm -hmm. wonderful book, and, and you know that did help me learn about the importance of dead trees for, for ecosystems, uh, even if it's not a scientific uh, book itself. Yeah, um, but it's a great book to read. So I, that's uh, I think it's 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 very good that you you read it. I'm glad to, others if you others have read it, I think, I'm sure they enjoy it as well. Yeah, yeah. Several folks have actually recommended it on this podcast, which uh, which which is why I read it. <laughs> um, so let's turn to another kind of key focus of the study, which is uh, carbon stocks. Mm -hmm. So from a climate change perspective, of course, we're all very interested in whether the amount of carbon stored in trees and soils. Uh, might be affected uh, by this increased demand for wood pellets. So what did you find in terms of trees and, and also in soil carbon stocks? Yes. So I guess I'll, I'll take a quick step back. And when you look at a, at a, at a system or a, an energy type, it's very critical to look at the entire system from where the energy is procured, in this case, transported, how it's turned into energy, how it's utilized. So it's it's very complex. So in, in the ongoing discussion about trying to label energy from wood stocks as being carbon neutral or not, it is very nuanced. It depends on the system that you're using. Within this very large and complex system or supply chain that procures energy feedstocks until the energy is turned into actual heat or electricity, um, the first step is procuring that energy and what's happening within the carbon stocks at that wood basket level. Right. So we're not looking at the, at the entire system, we're looking at the wood basket level. And within that wood basket level, um, something that we found was that there was more carbon in live trees among meals of a large uh, manufacturing capacity. Most likely, that's just markets working. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a market incentive to supply that fiber and, a, and an incentive to regrow that fiber. And something that is it's important in our study as compared to others, we're looking at that landscape level. For instance, if you, if you were to look at one acre of forest, let's say, you harvest it, you cut it down, and 
those trees, if kept under a forest cover, will grow back, but it will take time for them to grow back. So uh, indeed, you can make um, deductions from, from what happens at that level within one single acre. But markets work at a landscape level. So that's something that's, again, unique in our study is that we don't look at that very small scale, rather we look at the entire basket. And we found more carbon life trees. On the other hand, within the coastal southeast, we did find less carbon in soils. Mm -hmm. And and that is a point of, of a little bit of concern, but also keeping in mind that in the way we set up this study, we're comparing the coastal southeast to the rest of the eastern United States. Uh, and in that sense, um, less carbon in the coastal southeast might be only indicating that there was more carbon in soils in the rest of the region. Oh. So it's good to keep in mind in terms of the, <laughs> the statistical comparisons. Um, another caveat is that we use data from the Forest Inventory and Analysis Program. This is a program from the Forest Service, and it's the equivalent of the census, the, the census of forests in the US. Mm -hmm. um, so they have all these inventory plots throughout the entire country. And we use data from these plots to look at the number of trees, live trees, and dead trees. And some information from those plots is used to estimate, and I say the word estimate, uh, soil carbon. Um, so soil carbon is not measured directly, like you don't go and you stick something in the ground and you measure the, the carbon in the soil, right. but it's estimated um, through through other uh, tertiary equations. Um, and in that sense, it's it's a caveat to keep in mind uh, in terms of the data. Great. Nonetheless, there are new studies that correlate management with uh, lower levels of carbon uh, stocks in soils. And so I'm, there, there is some empirical evidence that management, intensified management could lead to lower level in carbon in, in soils. And so, uh, it's it's something very good to keep on monitoring and keeping an eye on right so yeah not a not a sort of very clear conclusion here but certainly an area to watch um it is certainly an area to watch and and, and one that actually we um with all the colleagues uh we, we're we're looking into in, in more detail and using uh, actually the inventory plots and the state-of-the-art information to see like wh what happens to this carbon, this very complex, one of the least studied carbon stocks, which is soils. So it, there's, there's plenty of research that needs to happen in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And so as you've been describing some of the results of this work, you know, there are clearly suggestions of positive outcomes and negative outcomes. Uh, but but also lots of uncertainty, as you've described. When you think about the different results that you're kind of piecing together in, in, in this puzzle, what are some of the policy implications that are, are drawn out from your perspective? Of course, there's going to be need for additional research and additional monitoring to better answer these questions. But at this point, with what we know now, what are some of the major policy implications that you take away? A major takeaway point, Daniel, is that in my opinion, one can look at energy from uh, from biomass, from wood pellets, from forests. That energy can be renewable, but it must be tested. Mm -hmm. They must have data, we must have information to validate 
the renewable and characteristic of the energy and whether it can reduce carbon emissions or not as compared to other alternative sources. So the first thing is I, I don't give an absolute conclusion. I'm not saying um, energy from wood pellets is carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it is, but it can be. So let's let's find out. Um, so for a, for a policy perspective, that emphasizes the point of monitoring, going and testing things, and, and we have already seen that within the European Union. I mean, we have um, one of the requirements within the directive is that carbon stocks cannot be depleted. One has to be uh, observant of protected areas, make sure that uh, key habitats uh, are from which um, biomass is sourced from are not actually sourced from protected conserved habitats. Um, so the EU, the European Union has, has worked in uh, specific guidelines and requirements for biomass to be labeled renewable and to contribute to carbon um, uh, neutrality or reduce carbon emissions. Um, so I think that's that's a key a key point for policy is monitoring uh, and also it's you know policy from a public policy perspective but also policy from a private sector perspective. And I think it, the private sector, the wood pellet industry, and, and I give um, full credit uh, to that. I mean, they, there is a strong commitment to sustainability in, in, in the U.S. wood pellet industry. And I have seen that. And, and I think it's a very good, very important step trying to engage in with uh, directly with um, um, good management practices, with state authorities, engage in terms of best management practices for forest management, adopting certification systems that try to um, assure uh, the sustainability of, of those, those wood fibers. So I, I think there is a lot of goodwill, sincere, honest goodwill, trying to make sure this, this industry is, is one that doesn't deplete the forest. N nonetheless, as this study points out, there might be rooms for, room for improvement, maybe improvement in terms of soil management, maybe keeping a closer eye on um, the ecological conditions in terms of uh, dead trees and the functions that they, they, they serve. Um, but from a, again, from a policy perspective, I think uh, monitoring, being dynamic, being open to to make sure that we are balancing economic objectives with um, conservation objectives, I think those are key. Yeah, that those are all great points, and it makes me think of how important this is going to be, not just for our current situation, but for the decades ahead. I mean, if we look at different scenarios from you know IPCC modeling teams as well as a variety of other modeling teams, when you look at sort of ambitious climate scenarios. Uh, most of them have biomass playing a, an ever-increasing role in the global energy system. So this, these issues of monitoring uh, and tracking are, are likely to become even more important in the years and decades ahead. Absolutely, and and you know, Daniel, one of the things that we we found in this study, when you know, when you look at these fancy statistical models and you try to look at how these carbon stocks have changed as a function of a, B, C, D, the variables that you control in your fancy model. It was population, it was extreme weather events. Those two variables in our model carried much of the weight in terms of the changes associated with um, forest conditions in those wood baskets. Hmm. So although the industry had an effect, it was population and <laughs> extreme drought and wildfire that had 
even a bigger effect. Yeah. And that has a big implication when it comes to, uh, you know, to climate change conversations. Uh, we, we, we have wildfires, drought that are becoming more prevalent, are, are getting worse by the year. Um, is this an industry or is procuring biomass a way to try to make these forests more resilient to that? That's a big question. And, and I think in that sense, maybe an industry like this can help play a role in, in making more resilient energy systems, more resilient forest systems. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about the sort of energy security implications of, uh, of, of, of biomass and, uh, and its unique benefits and vulnerabilities. Uh, that's so interesting. So, um, Francisco, this has been so fascinating. Uh, I'd really encourage people to uh, to check out the study. It's got some great uh, maps that are really fun to look at and, of course, fancy equations that <laughs> some of us love to dig into. Um, but let's close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests at the end of each show. What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Um, and I'll start with a quick recommendation of a very long, very interesting uh, uh, analysis that came out of Princeton University and a variety of other organizations called the Net Zero America Report. Um, it's a study that lays out a variety of pathways uh, for the U.S. to reach net zero emissions over the next several decades, and it's an incredibly detailed uh, document. It's like 200 pages or something, and I actually made it through the whole thing, uh, and some of the implications are just stunning uh, in terms of uh, the need to start building renewable energy, energy storage, energy transmission, uh, carbon capture and sequestration facilities, biomass energy sources. Um, it's just a, a really great piece of work that helped me get a better intuition for the kind of scale of investment that's needed to really reach some of these ambitious climate goals. And we're going to try to get one of the uh, authors of that report on the show sometime soon, but I encourage people to, to check it out. Um, but how about you, Francisco? What's on the top of your stack? Oh gosh, so many things. I was going to say Hemingway, but um, Hemingway counts. <laughs> actually, it actually is um, something that I perhaps as, as a way to encourage others. Um, there was one article already a couple of years ago, um, back in two thousand and nine, titled "With Energy in America," and um, by Daniel the Richter and others. And it, it's a very short paper. It came out in Science. Um, and sort of details how important the utilization of wood for energy can be in terms of climate um, mitigation, resiliency, and support local economies. And, and that's something that, that is critical in, in terms of supporting rural economies. As you may have heard, uh, Daniel, there are a number of mills that are closing down. Uh, demand for some types of, of paper is declining. and a lot of people are living their, are losing their livelihoods. Um, so wood energy will not completely replace the closing down of a big pulp or paper meal, but it can help fill a void. And in that sense, um, I think we need to have a better understanding of the benefits, the socioeconomic benefits of, of relying on bioenergy at a local level. Um, for, for those uh, perhaps interested in, in, in looking at a very good summary of you know, the, the, the positive sides and the negative um, perspective when it comes to utilizing wood for energy, um, there was another article in, in Science published in 2007 that, that actually uh, goes back to different scientists and how there is one group that says, you know, this is really bad and another group that says, 
this is really good. Mm -hmm. And already you can tell I'm sort of in the middle. It can, as I say, it can be, I'm, I just want to look at the data. Um, but I think it's very good for everyone. I, I am not the type of person who <laughs> wants to ever become an influencer. I think we need more thinkers. I, I would like people to, to go and find this information in reputable journals uh, and, and, and build your own, your own opinion. Something that I love about RFF is, and this podcast is really try to make raise that idea of thinkers, criticize, look at different perspectives. Uh, so I, I would love to, <laughs> our, our, our listeners joining us today to, to do that. Um, and if another quick thing, if, if you are interested in a little short video about how wood energy can be better and be more efficient, uh, the United Nations Economic for Europe put one out is titled more energy with less wood and it's very cute and it's very well done and and highlights the nuances of, of this energy system and and how it can be a good thing but it also could have a negative side so um i i think that's sort of some of the points that i would like uh, to raise daniel great yeah those all sound really interesting and um and we'll make sure to have links to to each of those including the video in our show notes um, so once again, we'll say thank you so much, Francisco Aguilar, for coming on Resources Radio and sharing your work with us on uh, the wood pellet industry. Thanks for inviting me, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.